Thank you, Nick and ministry team. Man, aren't you grateful for these guys? I'm just so grateful for them. I just love uh, helping me get my eyes in the right places. Grab your Bible and let's get our eyes in the right place. Daniel chapter 3. We are uh, today doing, uh, in essence, part one of chapter 3. And uh, we're come to this point in this chapter to where, and we'll just stop there at verse 18. Oftentimes when this passage is uh, taught, it's taken all the way through. And so often it's left out some of the aspect of um, the tension of what's happening, the pressures of what's actually taking place on the people in the story. And so I've been, each of these three chapters so far, just going halfway through and stopping, stopping at the tension point. Because we so often forget how people deal with the tension of life when it's heavy, when it's expansive, when it's like all forces down laid on. And I want to tell you, this, these 18 verses are so cool and so heavy and so pressing. And so let's get pressed. Here we go. Uh, Daniel chapter 3. And I want to start by actually reminding us of these four guys, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. Uh, I th- am, I, am I doing okay here? Do I got a bad connect? For these guys, too. Woo! <laughs> um, where am I? Okay, these four guys. Three things about these four guys before we dig into the text that stick out. One, we've been able to see, number one, that these four guys have a vertical relationship with God. They have a relationship. I'm not talking about the religious I'm not talking about they know about God. I'm not talking about anything other than these guys have a living, breathing reality relationship with God. And I just want to put out for you, if you, as you hear me say that, you're like a relationship with God, that sounds kind of like, I don't get that. Hey, listen, if you came with someone, ask them. Well, at the end of the service, well, there's people here, you can ask them. But come to understand, the Bible talks about having a relationship with God. Not this far off distant thing, but a relationship. It's one of the things that stick out about these guys so far. One of the other things that stick out about these guys is that they're having a ver- vertical relationship also translates into seeing their vertical relationship in their horizontal reality. It's one thing to be able to say, there's a God out there. It's another thing to be able to say, there is a God, and I have a relationship with this God through Jesus Christ. And as I look at life, 
life is different because of that. It's not just something off and out there and in the distance. It's something here and now, through at work, through at home, through at school, through relationships. The whole vertical aspect is lived, seen in the horizontal. They see it. And third, they live it. They don't just understand there's a God and leave it at that, but they have a relationship with the God of the universe. And they see how that relationship, all of life is seen through the grid of that. And then they don't just leave it there. They then go and they live it out. And we've seen that so far with these four guys. Uh, Let's make sure this is all about the God of the universe, not the four guys. But it is such a help to be able to see that connection taking place. Well, chapter 3 just continues this reality for us and allowing us to be able to see the vertical relationship lived out in our horizontal reality. And I want to start with us in chapter 2. Before I do that, let me just pray, kind of get us, uh, get us in here. God, I just pray as we open your word that our eyes would be on you. That the things of life that have been taking place so far in the last week or this morning, I'm not saying leave it at the door because that's life. I am saying with it that on our shoulders right now, may our ears and our eyes and our hearts be open to hear from your word and to allow the situations that these guys are going through help us this week as we endeavor to be ones who see and live you out in our lives for your glory. Eyes vertical. Christ's name we pray, amen. Let's start in chapter 2, verse 46. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel. If you remember Daniel chapter 2, Daniel, uh, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. He says you need to interpret, tell me what the dream was and interpret it. Uh, Daniel, by God's grace and God's revelation, allows him to know that he does that and literally lays Nebuchadnezzar uh, flat on his face. And he commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to Daniel. Verse 47, the king answered and said to Daniel, truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings. By the way, this is not a conversion statement here. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar continues to be a polytheist. Uh, He is a revealer of mysteries. You've been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon, chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. And Daniel made a request to the king. And he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. So we have Nebuchadnezzar. He's the king. He's the ruler of Babylon, the, the, the main place of all the earth. He is the ruler dude on the planet. Uh, yet he's a polytheist. He's awed by God. He respects God. He uh, is, is enamored by Yahweh. But this is not the kind of thing where there is one God, and that is the God that I need to have a relationship with. We see uh, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. They have been at the end of chapter 2. They, in essence, are placed in some high positions, overseeing some things with the province of Babylon. Uh, They are kind of outside the walls of Babylon, most of them, their time. Then we have Daniel. Daniel, at this time, these guys are about 20 years old. At this time in chapter 2, Daniel is like the governor of Babylon. Now, for you and I, we go, wow, the age thing. But I want for us just to take a minute and watch this video. It's a little bit blurry. It's not the clearest thing, but that's okay. 
I want for you to be able to see this computer-generized feel and get the feel for how awesome Babylon was at this time. The gate of the gods. I want to tell you, you look at that and you go, listen, this was not Avon. This wasn't Brownsburg. This wasn't Plainfield. This wasn't Danville. This wasn't even Indianapolis. Listen, this was a high-tech powerhouse on the face of the earth. This was a massive, if you will, in our day, this is a nuclear power of all nuclear power centers on the face of the earth. And Daniel is the governor over what you just saw. Listen, this isn't about patting these four on the back and going, dude, you are awesome. This is about going, this is what four faithful individuals who see a big God and want to live that out in their life, what God can do with four little peons. And that gives me and you hope. Do you ever feel little? Oh, I matter. Deal. I'm just, I'm just a guy who grew up in the Midwest. Listen, I'm not saying God puts us all in massive power positions. That's not what this is about. But do you have the eyes to see that God wants to use you in big eternal ways for him? And that may never be in the newspaper. That may never even be known by many people. But it's all about eyes vertical and living that out in the horizontal. Let God take care of the vastness of it. Love this story. Love what we're going to see. How do you react when everything and everyone is crashing down upon you? Daniel chapter 3. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. So it was 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide, 9 feet deep. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, 
the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Verse 3, then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image. Oh, by the way, the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Five questions come out of this verse and some of the ones following here. Let me just hit some of these. Uh, when was all this taking place? We finished chapter 2. At the end of chapter 2, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah are all uh, probably right around 20 years old. There's two views on chapter 3. Chapter 3 is viewed either as being some 20 years later. In other words, there's a 20-year gap between chapter 2 and chapter 3. So that would mean that these uh, individuals are in the 40s, 40 years old. Man, that's young. <laughs> all relative, isn't it? So it could be, and there's some reasons why that view is taken, uh, and, and there's some good reasons why. I don't want to get into all the details. The second view is that actually this is shortly after chapter 2, which would mean these guys are about 20, 21 years old. Uh, we don't know. We just don't know which is which for sure. So what do we think about them? Does this impact anything? And the reality is, no, it really doesn't impact the story, whether these guys are 20 or whether these guys are 40. I'll tell you what, how about this? If you're closer to 20, these guys are 20. If you're closer to 40, these guys are 40. Okay, let's go with that. I actually think, uh, Frank, I actually think it was a little bit closer to 20, but it's not a big deal. I want for you to understand there's a couple views on some of these kinds of things with it. Question number two, what do we know about this image now, you're seeing on the screen a, a fuzzy image, and uh, there's a reason for that. Let's talk about what we do know about this image. A few things. Number one, verse one, we know that it was an image. <laughs> Pretty smart, huh? Well, that's important, actually, because it's meaning that it wasn't something that was just made up. In other words, it's an image of something, okay? It's an image of something, and the word here in the text, the original language, is the image is it's in the broadest sense, so it really doesn't help us. It just says it's an image of something. Secondly, we know of this image that it's of gold. Uh, in that day, this likely would not have been solid gold. This probably was like a plated gold and not like a leaf gold. You know, nowadays, sometimes you see those things where it's like aluminum foil paper thin. It, it, usually in that day, they would actually have, it would be more thicker plate that they would put on and then get on form on to a structure and then be able to actually carve into the gold all the details of things. So it was probably plated, but it was of gold. We know another thing that by the dimensions, this was big, this was colossal, this was monstrous. I mean, it's 90 foot by nine feet. We'll, we'll, I'll talk a little bit more of that in just a minute. Uh, but I will say this, it wasn't totally out of the question of its size. There were other things in ancient times that were as big, if not bigger than this, but it was huge. Another one is it, we know that it was built on the plain of Dura. Well, where is that? We don't know. <laughs> the plain of Dura. Dura is a word that's kind of a generic word. It means anything inside, there's walls around it. Now, could this be in Babylon then, as you saw in the computer graphic thing with the really cool music? I love that music. Um, on that. And it was at that no, because of the term plain. 
plain is referring to something that's outside of the city. So this was outside of the city somewhere, and there's actually a few views on where it could have been. One of those views is that it was about 16 miles southeast of the city of Babylon. Uh, more conservative scholars would agree they kind of take the positions it's about six miles outside of the city. The point is, it was outside of the city. Some even say that actually what happened, and it is kind of interesting, possibility, we, again, we don't know for sure, but that they actually used some of the base from the Tower of Babel to continue building on that. There's some interesting perspective thinking about that from, if you will, a 30,000-foot God view over the history of time. Wouldn't that be interesting? But we don't know. <laughs> but it was built. Uh, we know this. It was colossal. It was overlaid with gold. It was an image of something, and it was outside the capital city of Babylon. So what don't we know? Well, <laughs> the thing that we want to know, what was in an image of? We don't know. Hey, uh, if you've taught children's classes or with your children at home um, or with others, uh, I'll bet that you have always assumed out of this text it tells what the image was. Read it. It doesn't tell. It doesn't tell. Now, could it have been an image of a man? It could have. Could it have been an image of, especially if the timeline was closely after chapter 2, could this have been the image that Nebuchadnezzar dreamed in chapter 2? Could have been, but we don't know. In fact, most of the, the felt stick on things, you know, teaching kids classes, that you have, most of them show this as a man or of like the chapter 2 image. But again, look at the text. It doesn't say. Could it have been an image of Nebuchadnezzar? Could have been. We get to chapter 4, and we begin finding in chapter 4, this boy was proud with a capital P. And we get there, and it's like, you know, when you're that, you're king of the universe in your mind, and all this kind of stuff. You're like, let's see, I would like to build an image for everybody to bow down to. I know, how about me? You know, oftentimes we live that way anyways, don't we? And there's a whole other thing with that, but... Uh, we don't know. It also could have been an uh, image of one of the gods. It could have been an image of Baal, not Baal, but Baal at the time. Or it could have been an image of Murdoch, kind of the prince of the gods in a polytheistic world. Understand, this is a polytheistic world where there are all kinds of gods. Anywhere, everywhere you go, gods everywhere. A god, you have this god, yeah, la, 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 la. That was kind of the world it was. It could have been one of the prince uh, or main gods that they had at the time. But here's the thing we don't know. Why would that be? Well, I'll hit on that here in a little bit. Um, well, let's focus on the size. Uh, a humorous one. Andrea, let's go ahead and bring up our first one here. And uh, there's the Jolly Green Giant uh, in Minnesota. I went to the University of Minnesota for a couple years and uh, had some friends who worked at Green Giant who would... Uh, be familiar with this. And this is a statue that's actually 55 feet tall. Okay? Just kind of giving you a bit of an idea. It's 55 feet tall, so that's about 60% of the height. Let's go to the next one, Sam Houston. Sam Houston is a, is a statue that's 67 foot tall. It's in Huntsville, Texas. It is the largest statue of a statesman or senator. So that's pretty good size when you see the people down at the base, isn't it? Now, uh, that's not the full height. Let's go to the full height, and I'm kind of saddened about this, frankly, but let me tell you with this. You can see this is a 90-foot-tall image. 
and you get the idea perspective of some of the people. I say this is kind of sad because I, I just I'll, I will say this: if uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus, were to come back today and to see a ninety-foot image of herself on a mountain, I don't think she'd be happy. I don't know your background. I don't know where you come from. But I want to tell you this. Mary would have wanted to see a 90-foot image of her son, the second person of the Trinity, God in the flesh. That's another side issue as well. But this gives you perspective. 90 feet tall. That's huge. This is huge. Now, some of the debate comes about is, how, as you can see from this, that's way deeper than nine feet deep. Okay, how could this be? It's very likely that it was on a 20, 30, 35 foot pedestal and then an image on top because the proportions of 90 feet, nine feet, as if it was a person, doesn't quite match until you have some kind of podium to shrink it down. But the point is, is we don't know what the image is. And actually, I think it's really cool. Well, let's go to the next image here. Uh, if you want to be able to take your kids and remember this story and help them understand how big this image was, next time you're at the Indianapolis uh, Museum of Art, the very front of the building, over here, not the round part as much, but you can take your kids in front and use it as a teaching lesson, okay? Bring them out in the front, and from the base of the front entrance of the building to the roof is 90 feet tall. And this will just be a way that you can be able to look and remember the story and the height of the grandness of this image. Let's go to the last one here. This is an actual um, golden leaf-covered idol in uh, Ulaanbaatar, Mongolia, in a monastery. This is 90 feet tall. I'm going to have us leave this one up here for a while as we're talking, in part because... Uh, this image here has both a human component to it as well as an idol God component to it, okay? You can't see everything, but there's multiple hands. And so this isn't viewed as a, as a human. It's viewed as a, a God to bow down to in a polytheistic world. That's huge. That's huge. This is a big image on what's taking place. Well, let's keep reading in the text, verse 4. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages. Now let's catch up with all the people coming to this. Okay, a herald is saying something now. Who's all there? Well, we've got all these government people in the verses before. Here they are, the satraps. They are like the rulers over the larger divisions of the empire. And I think the order that we see those that were listed, was it two or three, verse two or three? The order, I think it goes from the big dogs to the smaller dogs. You have the satraps, then you have the prefects, high-ranking officials who are responsible to the satraps. Then you have governors, administrators of smaller regions, then counselors, advisors to the government's chief arbitrators. Then you have treasurers, and then you have the, uh, who care for the public treasury and funding, and then justices, the lawyers, the judges. You have the magistrates, the sheriffs, the police officers, and so forth. And then it says in that verse prior, and all the officials of the provinces. So like all the, you know, the mayor of Avon and Danville and Brownsburg and Plainfield and Indianapolis and all. You get an idea, lots of people are coming. Then you add in what it says in verse 4, uh, oh, peoples, nations, and languages. 
when you read this text, you have to get this growing massiveness, this massive towering image, and this massive number of people, and this massive number of people includes these massively powerful people. Getting the idea? This is supposed to feel massive, okay? That's part of how the flow should happen here. All these people are coming together, verse 4, and the herald proclaimed, you are commanded, not requested, not suggested, not an email went out and, and kind of gave you a, a clip to be able to go to. This is you're commanded. You're commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, verse 5, that when you hear the sound of the horn, of the pipe, of the lyre, of the trigon, of the harp, of the bagpipe, and every kind of music, you're to fall down and worship the golden image. Now, it's kind of interesting here on this. I just want to make a comment. They live in a polytheistic world. And the fact of here, you're commanded now to fall down to this image. <laughs> For most of these people in that day, it's kind of like, okay, well, sure, whatever. An image, image. Uh, this isn't so much what we think of, I think, in the flow here, that these people are falling down and necessarily all of them together are attributing this as, this is God. Okay, we kind of take that because we don't live in the massive polytheistic world that they did back then, although we live in it in a very sublime, subtle way. Because what's good for you is good for you, and what's good for you is good for you. But here they are, they're commanded to fall down and worship. Oh, look at the very end of verse 5. You're to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Uh, uh, let me keep reading, I'll come back. Verse 6, and whoever does not fall down and worship shall be immediately cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Now, this furnace was likely the furnace that was used next to this image to prepare the various items and the gold plates and so forth for it. Back in that day, they would find, they found some of these furnaces. Furnaces could get up to, uh, produce up to 1,800 degrees Fahrenheit. A kind of vision for us, you know, along 465 with all the construction, they have these portable cement factories that get set up. That's kind of what this was. A furnace was right there, so it was very convenient. Hey, listen, here's the deal. Fall down and worship, or um, mm, uh, what, what could be really be nasty? I know, let's burn you to death. And it just happens to be very convenient. We got the big furnace right here. Uh, that's what's taking place. Verse 7, Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, the nations, the languages fell, fell down and worshipped the golden image. Uh, what? Okay, a couple items. Number one, how, how did all this function? Honestly, I don't quite know. Because if this place was at minimum six miles outside of Babylon, did they, you know, did they, Nebuchadnezzar go, okay, sound up the band. And then everybody, like the bagpipe marching crew, they all, dun, 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 dun. I don't think that's what happened. In fact, I think what's actually taking place, by the way, one of the reasons that we don't see Daniel in the story, I think, or others think as well, that Daniel is remaining back in Babylon. Why? Because he's the governor, if you will, of Babylon. He's in Babylon, even while all this outside of the city is taking place. Why would that be? Because probably not everybody was out there. Did people there in Babylon fall down and worship? Did they? I don't functionally know how all that worked out, but likely Daniel is not there because Daniel is back ruling the roost still. 
while they're all out six miles or more at this worship scene. Again, we don't functionally know how all this takes place, so there's some speculation. But that's some way that that could have been happening. So all the band strikes up and they all fall down. Now, again, we usually have the idea that this is about this image, that the center of this story is about the image and what we would understand as followers of Christ as the worship of the image. I want to tell you, I don't think that's the focus. I think that's part of the reason why Daniel never talks about what this image even was. Because this image and this story, this is all about Nebuchadnezzar. This is all about Nebuchadnezzar. You see Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 1, chapter 2, and it's still focused in chapter 3. And when we get to chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar's all over that baby as well. And what we really see happening here, in fact, let me show you this way. Look, verse 2 at the end. Dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. End of verse 3. The dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then go to verse 5 at the end. The golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then go to verse 7. I'll bet you're wondering what's there too. The image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up five times in four verses, the image is referred to as not describing the image, but describing the one who created the image. Oh, and by the way, in the next verses up through verse 18, we're going to see it at least four more times. This is all about Nebuchadnezzar. And this falling in worship is not how, in essence, we would stand here and go as we're singing these songs. God, you are indeed on the throne. Bring my thinking in line with you. Bring my praise in line. I want to declare you are God creator. Uh, that's not as much as what was happening here. I, I think I think this is almost more like a solidarity time, a salute of the flag of Babylon. So that all these people come out. Again, these are polytheists. Do they have to believe that this is God? No, no, no. Just bow. Why? Because it's about unity. It's about the grandiose nature of the greatness of our kingdom and our king. And so there they all are and they... What a sea, what an image of people just bowing. I wonder what that looked like from God's view. I don't know. Broken heart. I think this is all about unity as a nation and all about Nebuchadnezzar. So they fall. Well, there's a problem. There's a shakedown. Verse 8. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans, not all of them, we've talked about the Chaldeans before, so I won't get into it. At that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. By the way, this word for maliciously accused is actually the literal translation of it is they ate the pieces of. In other words, this wasn't like, hey, I know a piece of information. Guess what? This was these guys were coming like this, trying to chew these boys up or these men up, okay? That, that's the tone of the language here. Maliciously accused the Jews, verse 9. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, oh, by the way, they didn't want to go to these three and say, hey, 
you know what? I'm concerned about you. Um, did you not get the memo on what, how this is supposed to work? Uh, let me just put it this way. People that are resentful respond this way. You see, they don't follow biblical principles and go talk to that person. No, no, no. You go talk to everybody but that person. Because you really aren't loving that person, you're loving you. And resentful people look for opportunities to catch people that did them wrong in their eyes. A whole nother lesson on that. But this is what's happening. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever, which is a common statement of the day in addressing the king. Verse 10, you, O king, have made a decree. It's kind of like, uh, I just want to remind you, king, what you did. Uh, what, you think this guy's like a doof? Here, as they're talking, look, look, this is almost insulting to the king. Uh, this is part of the reason why I think this is closer to chapter 2 than 20 years, because if it's closer to chapter 2, King Nebuchadnezzar is still in his mid-latter 20s. And these guys who are coming are more probably my ages, in our 40s. And sometimes this older, arrogant tone can come at those in leadership who are younger. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. Yeah, we got that memo and we know that. We're reminding you in verse 11. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into burn a fiery furnace. Remember that one, king? You remember that in case you forgot that, that deal? Uh, there are certain Jews whom you, look at this, whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon. Can you say irritated? Can you say bitterness holding up in here with these guys? Notice this anti-Semite racist statements coming out here. Plus, they didn't get what they'd wanted. There's certain Jews whom you've appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon. They're ticked off at the king. And oh, by the way, their names are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, these men, O king, they paid no attention to you. Really? Really? That's not true. On the whole, but in this one, this is true. They pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods. That's true. Or they do not worship the golden image. And that's true. By the way, who set the image up? <laughs> Remember? They've got to remind them. Again, Daniel here just keeps reminding us this image is all about Nebuchadnezzar. We keep going. Verse 13, then Nebuchadnezzar in furious rage, it's actually two in the original, it's two words. It's the Nebuchadnezzar in fury and rage commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Verse 14. I love this. Nebuchadnezzar responded biblically. I'll term it. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Why do I say that he responded biblically? I say this responded biblically because he's checking to make sure the facts are true. In other words, as a leader, he's not attacking here. He's trying to gather data to find out, hey, Daniel, I heard this information, or the three guys, I heard this information, uh, and I want to ask you guys, is this true? I love this. This is the way it should be done. He's just right out asking him, is it true? Is it true that one, you do not serve, look at this, my gods? One more reason why this keeps coming back to be all about Nebuchadnezzar. This isn't so much about serving, if you will, the God of the universe, but are, are you gonna, is it true that you do not serve my gods? 
or worship the golden image. And I just want to remind you guys, if you aren't aware yet, that I have set up. It's almost hilarious. But I think the narrator, Daniel, and the inspiration of God is repeating this again and again and again. And as I'm repeating it again and again, so that we get the idea this is less about the image and more about the creator of the image issue. Verse 15, now, if you are ready when you hear the sound of the horn, I don't know why Daniel always repeats these, but the horn, the bagpipe, the trigon, the harp, the, back, the keyboard, the guitar, and everything else, uh, music, to fall down and worship the image of God, oh yeah, that I have made well and good. In other words, you've got a second chance. I just have to note, that's an amazing thing. That's an amazing reality. We've already learned from Nebuchadnezzar. He can take anyone's throat instantly, anytime, anywhere, however he wants, whenever he wants. And yet he's given these guys a second chance. I, I, I don't want to read into what I can't tell, but I will say it just feels like there's a level of respect for these guys in some way. Or, to be frank about it, I think the other option is, is he knows he's put a whole lot of cash and time into these guys. And he doesn't want to lose three good investments. But I think there's some real respect here, and that would make sense from what's happened in chapter 1 and 2. Now, if you're ready when you hear the sound of these instruments to fall down and worship the image that I have made well and good, but if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Wow. There's not a whole lot of ways I want to die other than in my sleep. But you can ask my wife, the way I do not want to die is burning. Although I have told her, if that's the case, let me go. What a horrific death. That's the purpose. That's why this is being done. Look at this. I love this last little statement in verse 15 as he's talking to him. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Oh, folks, that's a massive statement, I think, in this first portion of this passage. This is all about Nebuchadnezzar and his power run. And in chapter 2, Daniel had taken the whole conversation vertical in reminding Nebuchadnezzar that God, that Yahweh was the one that had put him in place. And yet all that's being forgotten. And I want to tell you, how often do I forget that Yahweh is my Savior whom I follow and not me? God, can you move over on the throne? Because I'd really like to sit there for a period of time. And yet this is teed up perfect for God to show himself big. I, where is there a God? could do that these guys as i talked about earlier who have a vertical relationship with the living lord of the universe they see life they see their vertical in their horizontal i think right at this time this was one of the statements very possibly that just connected them in it's like yeah yeah i know i know look at the response from here shadrach meshach and abednego answered right then and there it wasn't like they went off to committee 
They didn't go like in chapter two and make a prayer time and all this kind of stuff. But here are these four, here they come, or the three, they come together right then and there and they go, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Now, listen, I just want to make sure this is not an arrogant, rude, kind of like I stand for Jesus and you're ugly. Okay, it's not this kind of a, a manner in which this is being said. This is a firm, gracious statement. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, look at this, our God. Just as I said, number one, these guys have a vertical relationship with God. Our God. Our God whom we serve. Oh, these guys have a relationship with God, see God, see their vertical in their horizontal, and live their vertical in their horizontal. Our God, who is able, look at this, who is able. Do you, do you see God as like some impotent God who's detached, non-involved, sitting in a lazy board chair, kicked back, kind of, you know, the drool coming out of his mouth, waiting till the time when Christ returns? Or do you see a God who is like there on the front of his seat, engaged in life and all of things, moving everything along and fully engaged and he is able? Hey, listen, whatever you have on your life plate right now, I want to remind you, God is able. Now, follow this. He is able to do what? What does the text say? He's able to deliver them. I mean, these guys are saying this. God isn't saying, hey, I want to remind you, I'm able to deliver you. These are these guys. This is great theology. This is living, seeing the vertical in the horizontal. God is able, and I want to let you know that God's able to deliver me. And look at what they even say. And he will deliver me. That's a little bit arrogant. There's a confidence here. There is a God. And he is able. And he will deliver us. But the next verse, this is huge. Look at this, but. What do you mean, but? What do you mean, God is able, but yet he's not able? Look at this, but if not, you get that? God is able. Whatever uh, maybe uh, hassle of life you may view yourself in right now, oh no, it's an opportunity. Uh, but whatever maybe hassle of life, God could take you out of it right now. If you have cancer, you have sickness, you have ill, whatever, God could right at this moment, God is able to be able to zing bang, that's gone. Finances, right now, God could just like, you go home and there's the lotto ticket on your countertop there. God could do that, couldn't he? <laughs> Doesn't sound like you're very convinced. Maybe not in that way. <laughs> but God is able. God is able. But. But God is not my or your genie in a bottle. God is not a Santa Claus God. In other words, because something good happened... God's there. And because something hard's taking place, God's not there. That's, not, that's horrible theology. The reality is, is that, like these guys, God is able to deliver me, and he will deliver me. That's the way I'm living life. But if he doesn't, you know what? That's fine. That's his sovereign choice because he's on the seat. 
and I'm going to live it out through that. And if that means in the statement that God will deliver me and yet I go burned to death, God is still God, he's still on the throne, he's still good, he's still merciful, he's still just, he's still right, he's still holy, he's still perfect. And I want to encourage you, if you wrestle with this thinking, picture yourself on a seat before God, and you have the opportunity, God, why do you let bad things happen to me or this world? Listen, I guarantee you will not leave that meeting going, I got him. You will leave that meeting going, oh, now I see what you were doing. You see, in all this, God has the big picture in view. And it may be that God takes you through a hard time of life for his glory, for positioning you in a place to do ministry that you don't even, I don't even know about yet. Oh, I just love this stuff. I got to finish. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods and we will not worship the golden image. Oh, yeah, that you set up. Hey, uh, this is the first half of the story here. And as the worship team kind of makes their way in here, um, I've asked Nick if we could finish out our time here by actually, uh, if you will, praying a song and, and so it was a song we sang earlier and i think it's just so fitting with what's taking place that oh friends th- th- this is this is the kind of thing this is a stand opportunity of life uh, god is real he's alive do you have a vertical relationship with the lord I mean, has there been a time in your life where you've come to understand the Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but through Christ Jesus, you can be forgiven of your sins, brought back, redeemed out, brought back as Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 talks about, and brought back into relationship with God, not into some functional goofball religion thing, but a relationship. And then out of that, everything needs to change. I see life this way. I see God using life as I grow in understanding the scriptures. I see life. I see life. I see life. I see the vertical and the horizontal. It's not just about my money. It's not just about my marriage. It's not just about the situations. It's not just about being harassed at school. It's not just about work. It's not. It's God in all of it. And then live it. And then get after it. So let's do this. I know. Let's stand. That'd be a good thing. Let's stand and let's sing this prayer, if you will. Amen.